Hello and welcome to Cellular Junkies. I'm Luke Kane and I am here with Damien Heath. Hello. This month we are profiling Lynn Ramsey's 2011 mesmeric domestic drama, We Need to Talk About Kevin. Just because you're used to something doesn't mean you like it. You're used to me. Good shot, Kevin. You're a natural. First he cries too much, then he's too quiet. And you see it as some kind of personal vendetta? You think I'm exaggerating? Listen, buddy, it's easy to misunderstand when you hear it out of context. Why would I not know the context? Lionel Shriver's 2003 novel, We Need to Talk About Kevin, was one of the most talked about books of the year. The story traces a mother and father coming to terms with a horrifying crime committed by their son. BBC Films acquired the film rights in 2005 and set about developing a film adaptation with Paula Jalfon, Christine Langan and later Steven Soderbergh as producers. At the same time, a rising Scottish filmmaker named Lynn Ramsey was working on a project she'd been developing for eight years, an adaptation of Alice Sibold's 2002 novel, The Lovely Bones. But when Peter Jackson expressed an interest, Ramsey was shuffled to the sidelines. Soon after that, her father and a good friend, Liana Dognini, passed away. She would later say of this period, It was a bummer, but I got on with it. You have to keep going or this industry will roll over you and leave you for dead. Soderbergh suggested Ramsey turn her attention to We Need to Talk About Kevin in 2006. But the project came with its own share of problems. The novel, told through a series of letters that pass between Kevin's parents, detail their son's increasingly bizarre behaviour as he grows into adolescence. It didn't necessarily lend itself to a screen adaptation. With husband Rory Kinnear, Ramsey set about writing the screenplay. Shriver, the author of the novel, was offered a consultative role on the film but declined the offer. She was ready to put the book behind her. The film was set to go into production when Summit, one of the film's financiers, pulled out, effectively cutting the budget in half. For a time it looked as if Kevin was going to be another false start for Ramsey. She set about reconceiving the film to make it affordable, while producers scrambled about for new investors. Ramsey's revised script became less a big screen adaptation of a major novel and more of a character study. Producer Luke Rogue would later say that the budget cut was the best thing to happen to the project creatively. Tilda Swinton, who was already committed as executive producer, seemed to agree. She read the new draft and now believes she could play the part as well as produce, and signed on in March 2009. For the oldest incarnation of Kevin, more than 500 youngsters were auditioned for the part before Ramsey settled on newcomer Ezra Miller. They wouldn't find out until production began that Miller was 17 years old and not 18, as he'd led the filmmakers to believe, which upset the shooting schedule, 
as he was technically deemed a minor and could only shoot between certain hours. Principal photography began in Stamford, Connecticut on the 19th of April 2010 and shot for 30 days. Cast and crew worked at a hectic pace to achieve the ambitious daily schedule, rarely shooting more than two takes on any setup. The movie's controversial themes created additional problems for the filmmakers. For a scene set in a supermarket, for example, both Campbell's Soup and Coca-Cola refused to allow their products to be shown in the background, afraid of forming negative associations with the film's disturbing themes. Swinton would later say of her time on set, we were out on a limb with slim pickings and it was hairy to the very end. The film premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in 2011, where it was nominated for the Palme d'Or. Distribution rights were picked up by IFC Films. It had a small international cinema release and grossed just over $10 million. Critics lauded the film, praising Ramsey's accomplished screenplay and Tilda Swinton's unaffected performance, which was nominated for a Golden Globe, SAG and BAFTA award. Despite its reputation amongst indie film lovers, we need to talk about Kevin remains an obscure and largely forgotten film. Perhaps its unrelentingly depressive tone, elliptical narrative and frank depiction of a mother's inability to bond with her child were simply too ugly for mainstream audiences to embrace. So Damien, what did you think about We Need to Talk About Kevin? Well, I think uh, we need to talk about Kevin to get to the bottom of that, Luke. <laughs> I like that you've just put on your glasses as well, I said that. I needed to be able to see. I'm suddenly intimidated. It is a very literary adaptation of a book. This movie has a narrative structure that is not seen in many films, uh, that is difficult for a lot of audiences. It's a very intelligent film. It's made for an intelligent audience. Ramsey doesn't really back down from that. Uh, she really makes no apologies for it either. The source material is very much the same, skipping between the past and the present, just at will. Without entering the movie with the knowledge of the book, it can be a little bit disconcerting, as it was when we both saw it, and I think we, we saw it years ago when it first came out at the cinema. Yeah. You are not given a lot of information at the start of it. I can't remember for sure, but I think we went into the movie not really knowing what was going to happen. I didn't know much about it. I mean, I think we knew the book had been so big, so we knew there was a school shooting of some kind associated with it. I, I remember there was an incident, but I, I wasn't really sure exactly what that incident was. And, I mean, even if you go into this film knowing that there's a school shooting, it's done in such a way that is uh, really interesting still. Um, you're not disappointed by how that's portrayed. It's very different. And the school shooting is, is almost peripheral to the central story. The fact that it's not really a shooting, it's done with a bow and arrow mm. uh, in both the book and in the movie. The difference is in the book he targets specific people, in the movie he doesn't. And I'm assuming it was a bow and arrow because the book was a British book where there's gun laws. And for whatever reason, it's interesting the filmmakers didn't choose to just make it a gun. Yes. And that, I think, makes it less about the shooting and about the motives for the shooting and more about the domestic the domestics of the whole situation the, the upbringing the the parent the parenting uh you know what the parent is like versus what the child is like if it had simply been about uh, you know what we what we see and actually hear and we'll talk about more during this podcast which is people taking a gun an automatic rifle and bringing it to school then that would have been the dominant story of this movie yeah but the fact that that's taken away from us there is no gun in this movie i think that places the emphasis on the other thematic concepts that are in here 
So when you first saw the film, were you confused, disoriented by it? Definitely disoriented. And it's a, as I say, it's a film you have to pay attention to. If you're not willing to pay attention to it, if you're going to be distracted, you are probably going to be lost. Yeah. However, if you are willing to pay attention to it, if you follow the story, if you pick up the little clues, and I guess that's part of the fun of watching movies like this, is that it's like a little bit of a treasure hunt. I mean, doing the research for this podcast, there's so many things that I hadn't encountered before that Lynn Ramsey does as a director uh, and as a screenwriter to make this a very literate adaptation of the novel um and it is like reading a book on screen so you do have to be ready for that there's going to be symbolism and there's going to be things that just don't make sense wouldn't make sense in the uh in the real world but you have to read them in a certain way with this movie and one of those is what we'll be talking about first with the idea of the unreliable narrator i remember when i first saw the film Uh, I was really anticipating seeing this film. I remember being really excited about it. Pretty much the only promotional material I'd seen for the film, the only thing that really stuck in my head was they showed, it must have been maybe in the trailer or something, but the shot of Tilda Swinton standing in the street with a pram. Yes. And the construction worker um, working and her just standing there and enjoying having the sound of her baby's cries overwhelmed by the sound of the machinery going on in the street. Yes. And I think that is such a powerful, provocative image. You know, a really emotionally disturbing image. The idea of a mother who is just so lost and so unhappy. And, you know, you, you, it has all kinds of ramifications. You wonder about how those sounds are hurting the child's ears. And you wonder about how she got there. How she got to a place where she could literally stand there like that. And that that would be better than being at home listening to the baby screaming. Yeah. Really, really amazing. And I remember thinking as well, gosh, I don't know that I've ever seen a film that's confronted that idea before uh, about, I suppose, postnatal depression, but maybe more than that, about um, a mother who's who's unable to bond with her child. I'm not sure about Lynn Ramsey's situation, but definitely Lionel Shriver uh, is not a mother. So she was writing from that perspective as well. When the film finally came out and I saw it, I remember loving it the very first time that I saw it, and I remember not feeling at all confused. I don't know why that is, because everything I've read subsequently, reviews and people I've spoken with, do say, oh, you know, it's basically the length of Tilda Swinton's hair that keeps you kind of <laughs> knowing where you are. Partly is the length of her hair, but then there's some scenes early on where she's got almost the same length hair that she has in the present day shots as well. So it it is a little bit confusing. But yeah, the length of the hair and also the vibrancy of the colours feels a little more earthy in the present day scenes than it does in the past. Oh, definitely. There's um, there's more vivacity to the colour of her life while Kevin's growing up. Yes. For me, there are, there are two things about this film. First of all, the subject matter, so unusual, you know, mm. and so bold. Uh, these things are taboo, these ideas about child attachment disorder, about PND, about a mother not being able to love her child, about a mother not being able to form attachments with her family, having resentment that she has a family. What do you, what do you mean not being able to form attachments with her family? Well, I don't think she forms an attachment with any of them. Even her husband? 
Definitely not. Okay. What do we see of Frederick once Kevin's born? We see her go out all day trying to quiet him. She's look on the couch, exhausted. He's finally asleep. I think his name's Franklin. Oh, I think it is Franklin. Yeah. <laughs> and she's, he walks in and she says, please don't pick him up. And he goes straight away and picks him up and wakes him up. Yeah. And then we see the scene where uh, Kevin destroys her map room. And he comes up to her and says, he says he's really sorry. He is totally He says he's useless. really sorry and he was just trying to help yeah. make it. He's totally useless. He's totally not in her corner. He's not supportive. He's he. We see him through her eyes and she shows us that he's a complete fucking wanker. Well, and that's the problem. We see him through her eyes. That's right. We don't see him as he is. We don't see any of them as they are. That's um. That's the idea about, you know, the unre- unreliable narrator. One concept which was not looked at in the movie at all, but which was looked at in the book. And do you know his profession in the movie? Um, no. I assume some sort of white-collar job. He is, uh, you know he comes home at one point and uh, Kevin asked to see if he took any photos that day. So he's a location scout for movies. Oh, right. Uh, and she is a travel writer. She's got a successful uh, series of books similar to the Lonely Planet books called The Wing and a Prayer. And it's not examined in the movie, but she, uh, I guess she has to travel a lot and she has to research these things. But she gives all of that up for Kevin to become a stay-at-home mum. Yep. And she is in charge of a large group of people who are still continuing her work. Whereas he is a uh, an independent contractor who is out there location scouting for movies. And it would be easier for him to give up his job than it is for her to give up her job and yet she's the one that makes the sacrifice and they don't really look at that in the movie and so i think they lose a little bit of in the translation of where she's coming from with him and with the i guess difficulty in accepting that he is on kevin's side when he's not there uh, when when he comes home because he's not there during the day when she has given up so much to be there so i think they lose a little bit of that they do show obviously she's given up a hell of a lot to to be a mother because the whole film is told as um somebody's emotional experience of something not objective at all and the reason that we know it's an unreliable narrator is because it's told in a non-linear way there's a memory logic to it scenes are disembodied they're just disin- they're disjointed we we get moods we get shades it's like when you remember back to having a conversation with someone and you can only remember one thing that was said that's how this film feels it feels like there's things missing before and after almost every scene and the film has a, a focus on the emotions on the psychology on how these moments made her feel and so i think the inclusion of all these narrative details of you know the fact that she's a travel writer which i think you kind of glean you'd probably it's never said but you kind of get the idea from the opening scene and you know her her um interest in maps and geography that that's something that she did and you know all of their details i don't think they matter i think the film isn't isn't it isn't the focus of the film i think the focus of the film is how the experience of having a family made this person feel on reflection looking back franklin is so absenteed and he's so not effectual i'm sure he was more effective i'm sure he was a better father Mm. and a better husband than we're shown kevin is shown as entirely malevolent from Mm -hmm. birth i'm sure there were more sides to him but her memory has skewed 
all of the things we're seeing in the film. And that's what's so fascinating about it. It's very hard to do an unreliable narrator thing in film. Yeah. Because your perspective is the eye of the camera, which is, by its very nature, objective. Well, that's right. The film is made uh, in the third person. The, the the book is written in the first person. So the fact that enough of the book translated into the movie is kind of admirable. It, it kept Eva's subjective narration, and it didn't even literally narrate. Uh, and that's the great thing about this movie, because under a lesser director, it probably would have been chock full of voiceover. Yeah. And uh, Lynn Ramsey, I think... I, I I read one comment and I forget who wrote it. It was a film director saying that she is one of the greatest living film directors. She's only made four movies. It probably sounds ridiculous to most people listening to this. But if she was to make ten movies that are on the calibre of We Need to Talk About Kevin, you'd have to say, yeah, she would be because she does this in such an intelligent way. There's different ways uh, that people can be unreliable narrators. So just uh, if you've never encountered the concept, you can encounter it through exaggeration or mental illness or naivety or outright lies. And those are among other things. Um, And by the way, an unreliable narrator is someone who's telling you a story where their credibility can be called into question. Yes. An example of this in a book would be if you're reading a first-person account of a situation and then the next chapter is somebody else's account and it varies slightly. So then suddenly you're not quite sure that what you've been told in that first chapter by that particular voice is the truth the objective truth or if it was just their impressions or if they're lying um, or if they are just misremembering. It's a very common thing in literature. It is a lot harder to do in film, as you say. An example of a naive, unreliable narrator is Tom Hanks in Forrest Gump. One of the reasons is, uh, you know, he's narrating his movie, voiceover, and he says, Sally's dad was so nice to her, he was always kissing and cuddling his girls. (laughs) And, you know, that's naive because he was molesting his his daughters. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio in Shutter Island with mental illness. At the end, they, they let him think he is what he wants to be. Uh, Guy Pierce in Memento, um, he has anterograde amnesia, which is the inability to make new memories. And so you see at the end of that movie that he is just picking someone and they are the person who killed his wife. And it's not true. Uh, Edward Norton in Fight Club, who has dissociative identity disorder. And uh, one of my favourites, I was talking to you in the car, is Swazi Ronan in Atonement, uh, who who exaggerates and who lies due to the guilt that she feels for ruining somebody's relationship, her sister's relationship. So those are all examples of unreliable narrators in film, Um, people who you're watching and you're trusting, and then for some reason you start to say, okay, well, what I've been shown or what I've been told is not accurate. It's a really interesting device, and it's um, when it's used well... It's very engaging. Eva in this film is, uh, I find her, an unreliable narrator for a few reasons. She's resentful toward her unborn child and he's accepting blame for her change in lifestyle before he's even born and that is unreasonable. And we know that that's unreasonable. She diagnoses herself with postnatal depression. This is, uh, I guess, a little more obvious in the book. She diagnoses herself with postnatal depression without ever accessing medical advice for an actual diagnosis, and this is therefore uneducated. Uh, She feels victimised by Franklin, but it would be the reaction of the majority of parents to dote on their children and to question an adult stating that a child was evil. And this is a form of paranoia. And at one point in the film, Eva and Kevin are spending a day out and about playing mini-golf, and Eva tries to bond with Kevin by stating that fat people are fat because they eat too much and they eat too often. 
and don't give me any of that slow metabolism crap. He responds that she is harsh and she says the same of him before he rhetorically questions where he picked that up from and the implication of course is that it came from her. And this is an unawareness of self. So you've got unreasonable, uneducated, paranoid and unaware of themselves. And so those are four simple reasons there that Eva is an unreliable narrator. You have to question kind of the way she's telling the entire story. Also, with the cutting back and forth, the initial thread of the story, um, the earlier thread, is about the mistakes she makes. And then the thread over the top of that, years later, is the price she's paying for those mistakes. So initially we have her as a very irresponsible, damaged person. And then at the end, at, at, in that second thread, we have her as a sort of a masochist. The whole, that whole modern part of that film, uh, the, the, I guess the present part of it, is just her punishing herself in all kinds of unpleasant ways. Yeah. Uh, one thing I noticed is that um, you would often get shots in the past of the coffee table and there would be food laid out on the coffee table and then you would cut to a, fil- a shot of a coffee table with food laid out of it, but it would be in the present. And so, you know, in the past, it's because this is Kevin's mess. In the present, this is her mess. This is how she lives now. It was unacceptable back then, but this is what she's doing to kind of, and you're right, remind herself of this is the the punishment I have to have now for how bad of a, a mother I was or for how much Kevin's ruined my life or whatever. And I mean, you know, some of the scenes are just yucky, like where she's eating the eggs. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. And forces herself to eat the shells yeah. that have been crushed by a mother. That's such a good scene. I'll take them as they are yes. when she buys those. That, that whole supermarket scene and and visually, and we'll get into that a little, little bit later, but visually this, this movie is just stunning. And there are so many moments that are so demeaning and awkward, like the scene where that sleazy reptile guy she's working with says, you think anyone's going to want you now? Yeah. Like he thinks he's in with a shot because she's basically a subhuman second-class citizen because of yeah. what her son did. All of the people that she works with are kind of gross. Yeah, they are. In some way. <laughs> and that Christmas party that they're having is just... It's disgusting. It is, but that scene's really sad because it's one moment where she's almost forgetting she's... Uh, an awful person. She's almost having an okay time. Mm. She's almost got a smile on her face for the first time and she is just brought right back down by that guy and by that comment. And then also the red paint, which goes which goes on her front walls the minute she wakes up at the very start of the film and she spends the rest of the film trying to get that red paint off, which, you know, is a fairly, I suppose, obvious metaphor. Absolutely. But I loved that, yeah. and I and I almost felt like she was deliberately taking her time with it, like she wanted to really suffer through getting it off. That's right, and she does. She does make herself suffer. Even though we're seeing Eva raise Kevin from birth, we see her get pregnant, and she's miserable, and then we see him born, and then we see her trying to get him to be responsive, to, to verbalise, and you can see her frustration and her irritation, and you can see how exhausted she is and how her heart's not in it. It's all just duty. Then, you know, later as he gets older, he's like this alien in the house and she just doesn't know how to deal with him and doesn't know what to say to him. Even when she's encouraging him, there's just such a falseness and an insincerity to it. You know, oh, that's great, Kev. You know, it's that whole fake mum sound thing that she's got. And I think the idea is that Kevin is, is you know, obviously he's got some emotional issues, but I think he's very intelligent. And I think he picks up on that insincerity almost immediately. Well, the times when she is, um, well, sorry, the times when Kevin does respond to her, and there's really twice, 
are both the times when violence is involved. And the first one is when she throws him and breaks his arm. And the second one is at the very end of the movie where he's uh, he's got cuts and bruises on his face and he can't answer her question why. And they embrace. Yeah. And so those are the two times where he really uh, responds to Eva. In an interview with Identity Theory, an online magazine, Lionel Shriver was questioned that since we were reading her novel from Eva's perspective, Kevin seems thoroughly sociopathic. She responded that... There have been some readers who take to the narrator sufficiently that they believe everything that she says and that's a mistake because I think that when you pull the camera back you can start registering, especially some of her early stories, well they seem very dark and terrible and that this kid is warped. When you start thinking about it more objectively, he didn't do much. And she gives an example in the book wherein Kevin is standing next to a classmate whispering in her ear while she scratches her eczema-pocked arms until they bleed. And the implication is that Kevin is encouraging her to take this action, but potentially the truth is purely that all Kevin does is not stop her from an action she's taking of her own free will. And we don't know, and we won't know, because we're in Eva's reality. And the movie seems to present a lot of this just a little bit less innocently than the book. However, it's easier to make the distinction between good and evil when it's visual and told in the third person. And Kevin looks more evil in the film than he does in the book, at least in the early stages. As even the author states about Eva, though, her vision is impaired. She is wearing spectacles that magnify everything. And so I think that's a good example of, or a good um, kind of write-up of, of how we should read Eva's uh, narration. Absolutely. And I think when this film came out, a lot of people did not read the film correctly. I remember reading people going, oh, this is Rosemary's Baby. Not people said it. this was Rosemary's Baby? Mm, I read that in a lot of reviews when I was doing my research. And it just stunned me because I just, I don't think of the film in that way at all. I don't think of um, uh, of Kevin as the bad seed. I think we're being presented with an image of uh, a child through the lens of someone looking at him. Mm. And so once you see the film like that, which is a more complex and interesting way to see the film, Mm. then it isn't about Kevin being born evil. It's about this idea of nature versus nurture. So, you know, we might be able to say that, yeah, there were some biological genetic factors that that led to him uh, forming this antisocial personality disorder. How much responsibility does Eva have Mm. in who he became? When he was a baby, he never stopped screaming. I thought maybe it had damaged his hearing. No, his hearing's fine. But shouldn't he be talking by now? I read somewhere that non-verbalizing was the, an early sign of autism. He has none of the telltale uh, rocking signs. I wouldn't worry about it too much. Postnatal depression is something that uh, is something that's probably worth looking at in relation to this film. Did you think that she had postnatal depression? No. Why? She was almost one-dimensional in her feelings towards Kevin, even before she was pregnant, uh, while she was pregnant, after his birth. So I don't think you could call it postnatal depression. I don't think the excitement came in being pregnant or the thought of having a child. Um, I think the whole lot was very scary for her. Yeah, do you remember that scene where she's in that uh, bathhouse with all those pregnant women and they're all, like, touching their bellies and talking and being very tactile and she's just sitting there with this giant swollen belly. And then one woman comes in from takes up the the side of the the right-hand side of the screen and pokes her belly into Eva's face and all she can do is grab her bag and leave. Yeah, she hates it. She hates pregnancy. It feels like she's not pregnant. It feels like she's got some sort of parasite in her. 
it's closer to Alien than it is nine months. It starts way before he's born. She's got prenatal dep- depression, she's got postnatal depression, and then she's just got depression for like yeah. 18 years. Yeah. You know, to any of our listeners who've been listening for a while, we're both gay, we're both childless. Luke, I think, wants children more than I do, and I think that would be true of basically anyone. I've chosen to be childless, and so that's a similarity between myself and and the, the novelist and the character in this novel. I have a that kind of perspective rather than a maternal or paternal perspective on this um, piece of art as well. And I think that the circumstance from which you're viewing this could have some kind of bearing on who you think is at fault, what you think might be wrong with them Yeah. as well. So why do you think Eva chose to get married and have kids? It's a tough one. I think she fell in love. And it's what he wanted. It's definitely what he wanted, but uh, she is doing something that is so against her nature. And I just don't think she ever had that serious internal reflection where she went, is this what I want? Will I be able to handle this? I think she was in love. She wanted to make the man she loved happy. And I suppose as well, there are some social pressures. You know, this is the life you should have. You know, you should be a mother. You should be, you know, blah, blah. And do you think she's scared? Do you think yeah. she's lonely? I think, yep, I think all of that. Do you think it's the, um, like uh, Jerry Seinfeld said to us, that, uh, you know, once you get somewhere, you just want to be somewhere else? That she's she's had this amazing life, she's travelled around everywhere, but the grass is always greener on the other side, wherever you're not. So maybe it's just that she tries everything. Yeah. He didn't say that to us directly. We were in, like, a crowd of, like, 100,000 people. Oh, no, he said that. Took us aside. (laughs) Our good friend Jerry. (laughs) I think that's part of it. I think it's kind of Revolutionary Road. uh, Is that what was it called? Revolution Road? Revolutionary Road, yes. Revolutionary Road Syndrome, where, you know, somebody just kind of gets caught up in a life they were never meant to have. Yes. There's definitely people who are better off not having children because they're not going to make great parents because they do... Not to say that they don't contribute because I, I don't think you need to have a child to contribute to society, but... Obviously, I don't think that, but there are people who are better off living their lives without children because the amount that they give up will always make them... Resentful. Resentful, yeah. And Eva is that person. Resentment is the word I would use to summarise the entire relationship that Eva has with Kevin. I think she is deeply resentful. Uh, We begin the film with these kind of very lyrical, faintly frightening shots of Eva in Spain at the La La Tomatina Festival, which is a festival that happens every year. uh, And it's just people basically throwing tomatoes all over the place and, you know, having a big tomato party. So uh, (laughs) one of the interesting things I read about this tomato party, as you called it, about La Tomatina is that these people, they start preparing like within the week before and they start putting up these plastic sheets to cover their houses. And people come along and there's these rules that you're not allowed to chuck anything hard, you're not allowed to chuck water bottles or anything, you've got to squish the tomatoes before you chuck them. And anyway, they chuck all these tomatoes, it's exactly like it is in the movie. Then there are, um, they they wash off with high pressure hoses or they go to this uh, lake or pond that's very um, popular for people to wash off. And then these uh, trucks come along and they clean. But because of the acidity in the tomatoes, the, the town is basically sparkling clean after this festival each year <laughs> because it just washes off all of the dirt, That's all funny. of the stains. 
Well, you know, this festival began in 1945 in August, and it started as just an impromptu fight. People just started throwing tomatoes because there was just some, I don't know, ill will. And then it was banned for a number of years because it was considered dangerous, uh, but ultimately got brought back, I think, after the early 50s and became like an official celebration. Yeah, it's one of the, like, it's a big tourist event now. Um, it happens in Buono, near Valencia in Spain. Buñol. Later, that city is echoed. There is a poster for Buñol in uh, the travel agency that Eva works in. This opening scene is really significant. Firstly, I love that it kind of bookends the film in blood. Because the tomatoes and the way that it's filmed with that kind of menacing photography, it recalls blood. And we get, obviously, the scene at the beginning with her just drenched in it. And then the scene at the end with Kevin's bloodbath murders. Well, yeah, well, she she is literally drenched in it after at the end of the movie as well, after she's gone outside. But the other thing that this scene comes to represent is the life Eva led before her family, the life she was meant to lead, the life that made her happy. It also represents the sacrifice she made to have a family. So the fact that we constantly come back to those shots that they kind of are littered throughout the whole film keeps reminding us that um, this is somebody who is dangerously off course from where she's meant to be. I mean, that's not the only reference to her travel throughout the movie, obviously, when she decorates her house, her her room in those rare maps. But this is, I guess, the most visual. When I say that this is a very intelligent film, you've got to read a lot into that scene. You've got to say, hey, this this is Eva's life. This is before children. This is what makes her happy, and this is what she's giving up. So you've got to make that connection to be able to read this movie accurately. Okay, gonna roll it back again. That was really good, Kev. Okay, here we go. Okay. So can I ask you about that scene where she breaks Kevin's arm? Kevin refers to it as the most honest thing you ever did. Why do you think Kevin is able to respect her, even let her in a little bit, after she breaks his arm? Well, this is, I guess, where you start to talk about what's wrong with Kevin to make him, to make him feel that way. Did he never want to be there? Uh, you know, is he finally recognising that his mother didn't want him so that's, uh, you know, he feels like he's unwanted by her. And so her breaking his arm is her first example of showing that to him. The mask comes off. I think he's always known his mother doesn't want him. And now he's seeing it. He's been shown it so he can respond well, to it. Well, she's admitting it. Hmm. That's the difference. Not that he can see it, but that she's finally admitting it. And yeah. I think that that is why in that moment he's like, ah, OK, this person... If you're going to be honest, this person I can probably communicate with. It feels like it's not even I can probably communicate with this person. It's almost I can get on board with this person. Yeah. It's almost a respect. So at a certain point in um, Kevin's early life, we um, he starts to form a real, hey, dad, kind of relationship with Franklin. Now, my theory on this is that he does that as a performance piece to mock Eva's false sincerity towards him. I think he puts on a show for his dad to reflect back to Eva the show she has been putting on for Kevin. I had not read it as a reflection. I had definitely read it as false. Uh, It is definitely something, a performance that he is doing for Eva. Yes. 
um, whichever way you look at it. Look, again, it depends on how you read Eva's narration. It could be that he was genuinely fond of his father. However, I guess the ending of this movie shows that it was it was a performance. Well, there's um, some uh, unused dialogue that was taken out of the film uh, in one of the scenes where Eva is um, with Kevin in the prison. And she says to him, why didn't you kill me? And he says, you don't want to kill your audience. I, I read that before I rewatched the film. And so then I was very much looking at the whole film as if everything that Kevin did was for his mother's benefit. And I just think that kind of falsely connected relationship he has with his dad, all this false affection, I feel like that that is a way of him kind of throwing back in Eva's face all the false affection that she has sent his way. A lot of people are going to read it a little bit differently, and I, I, until we're having this discussion, I'd always read it this way as well, is not so much that it was a performance to show that, hey, you're being fake with me, but it was a performance to show that, hey, I am being horrible to you. And I guess that's what Eva wants you to think. Mm. She can be, He can be nice because he's nice to Franklin, but he's horrible to me. And, I mean, that's why she hates it in in a way, but I think... As she gets to know Kevin better, as he gets older, I think she knows very much that it's a performance, that he has no real regard for his father. And I think that that the insincerity bothers her. And she never puts together (laughs) that the insincerity that bothers her is exactly the same thing that Kevin is bothered by, that she does. Well, people are so blind to their own flaws that they... And this woman's so blind. Yeah. Like, this woman is myopically blind. She's just, you know, doesn't see anything. So, Kev, um, Mom had something that she wanted to tell you. I wanted to thank you for calling the ambulance. And? And I was concerned that you might be feeling responsible. Was that? Because you were supposed to be looking after her. We just don't want you to blame yourself. No, I don't. I mean, I, I never said I did. What is wrong with Kevin? So I think it starts out as something called child attachment disorder, which is defined as a condition in which individuals have difficulty forming lasting relationships. They often show a nearly a complete lack of ability to be genuinely affectionate with others, and they typically fail to develop a conscience and do not learn to trust. And I think as Kevin gets older, this becomes antisocial personality disorder, which is, um, you know, a very serious mental disorder that uh, affects um, a percentage of adults. Popular terminology for it is psychopathy or socia- sociopathy, but uh, these aren't psychiatric terms that are used anymore. They call it antisocial personality disorder. I'm going to go through a couple of the characteristics of this disorder. Tell me if you think they apply to Kevin or not, okay? So, disregard for right and wrong? Yes. Lying and deception? Yes. I thought, you know, um, he lies about feeding Sealy the liquid drainer. Yeah. Uh, he lies about how his arm got broken. He, he does, yeah. Aggression and hostility? <laughs> Yes. Has problems establishing interpersonal relationships. Interesting that we never see Kevin with any friends. I don't think we're shown enough to comment on that. Using wit and charm to manipulate others for personal gain. Yes. (laughs) A sense of superiority. Yes. My example for that one is the scene where the mum and son dinner and golf day. You know, where he totally deconstructs her 
kind of pathetic attempt to parent him. And then a lack of empathy, which um, the scene that makes me think of that is the one where he says, um, Celie's just going to have to suck it up. Mm. She's going to need a glass eye, Kevin. So we would appreciate you looking out for her and any name calling. You don't really remember being a kid much, do you, Dad? Celie's just going to have to suck it up. It's funny, they're talking about her eye, and he's eating that fruit. A lychee. That resembles an eye. And the way that the camera focuses on the way that he's just crushing it in his mouth, and, he, you know, it's an acquired taste. Well, Sick. also, drain cleaner is made from kind of sodium called lye. <laughs> and he's eating a lychee, and he's peeling it. And, and literally, the symbolism is that he's eating her, her eye. Don't you find that uncomfortable? Oh, it's very uncomfortable. And the way that it, it closes in on his mouth as he crunches down and this juice spits out. Yeah, all dribbles all down his chin. Mm. Uh, there's uh, something called conduct disorder, which is aggressive or non-aggressive behaviour against people, animals or property. And oppositional defiant disorder, which is defiant, angry, anti- antagonistic, hostile, irritable, vindictive actions that don't meet the criteria for conduct disorder which are, I guess, two other things that he could be diagnosed with, but there's a lot of things that he could be diagnosed with. Yeah. So when she breaks his arm, he um, shits himself twice. Yeah. He has um, some real developmental problems. He well, doesn't... before she breaks his arm. Oh, yeah. So he's, he's having trouble verbalising or... It's not actually that he's having trouble verbalising, we find out. He just doesn't want, doesn't want to talk. But also he's in diapers until he's, I don't know, maybe eight or nine, like it's too long. Uh, and I don't think they show him when he's eight or nine. He's a little bit younger than okay, that. Okay, so maybe yeah. six or seven? A little. I, th- I, th- I would say he'd be maybe four or five. And he uh, won't respond. He's like not, not physically, cognitively responsive to anything. So, I mean, all of this, of course, adds to, I think, Eva's difficulty to connect with him. Do you know, the thing is, I think if Eva had had a different kid, it would have been okay. But I think he was too intelligent. I think he saw through. I think a lot of kids wouldn't have picked up on a lot of what Kevin picks up on because she does go through the motions. You know, she does do all the things she's meant to do. So, I mean, a lot of kids would would have been happy enough with that. I just think that Kevin was too intelligent and that he knew exactly how she felt about what she was doing. He could see through it all. And I think that that's why... She fails so, so badly with him. And, you know, when Celie comes along, she seems to be a pretty good mother to her. There's a scene um, in present day where she sees her mother walk past with her little blonde daughter. And you can feel Eva's pain in that moment that she's lost her daughter. I don't think this means that Eva would have ever been a good mother. I don't think she was a good mother um, because I don't think there was any real genuine feeling there for either child, really. I think that she was, I think that resentment just spoiled everything for her. But yeah, it's interesting that she got Kevin as a kid. Well, in the in the book, that's that's made even more it, it, even worse for her because her and Franklin have this argument. She doesn't want to give up her identity, so when they get married, she refuses to take his last name, which is Plaskett. They're having this discussion about having a child, and he is just of the assumption the child is going to have his last name. But Eva fights so strongly for that not to be the case, so they end up agreeing. That if she has a girl, it'll get the name Cachadorian. And if, if they have a boy, it'll get the name Plaskett. But then she starts to question that. Oh, it'll be the boys against the girls and it's just gender. So they swap. 
And, of course, she has a boy and it gets his last name and she has to live with that for the rest of her life. And her last name is not Smith, it's Cachadorian. <laughs> so you hear that and you know that's that guy that went to the school and killed all these people. Mm. In a way, she brings a lot of this stuff on herself. She fights for the wrong things a lot of the time. And um, there's no... I mean, you can sympathise with her, but you, do, you can't excuse her for anything. Mm. Uh, you know, you can't go, well, you know, that part wasn't her fault. Everything was her fault. Everything was her fault. Uh, and she never should have got pregnant. She should never have got pregnant a second time. And that's something that really pisses me off when that happens in the film. I really, I, I never hate Eva more than when she gets pregnant a second time. Because by then you're just thinking, you're not meant to be a mum. You're already completely destroying one life. Now you're going to bring another in the world to destroy? How dare you? Go and live your holiday life. Go back and do your travel writing. Abandon your family. They'll be in for a better chance without you. So when Eva visits him the last time, she asks him why he did it. And he says, I used to think I knew, now I'm not so sure. And Eva nods as if she totally understands this, as if his uncertainty is progress, and gives him a hug. And it's the first time that she is tactile with him in a way that is not mechanical, but that has a real feeling behind it. I mean, she gives him an embrace that has a real strength and conviction. Uh, and then she walks away and there's real agency in the way she walks away. You know, it's the first time we see this character look like she might one day care about something again. Uh, and I think that that is just a really incredible note for the film to go out on. However, I'm almost 18, aren't I? What is it? Going to big school making you nervous? Nervous? Do you know anything about those places? The film does just very lightly tap onto this idea now and then about it being about celebrity and him wanting to attain, attain infamy. And I think 
it doesn't work mostly, but one moment that it works incredibly well is when Kevin comes out of the school. Mm. They distort the sound of people being screaming so that it sounds like applause. Like he's a rock star. That is echoed in that shot from behind when he's up on the stage with his bow and arrow and he bows, but the screams are there again, but they're... They could be a screaming at a concert. That's right. Could be euphoria, not terror. Hmm. One scene I just had to say that I loved, one sequence, was the sequence where she's driving home on Halloween night. Oh, yeah. How good is that? Yeah. How technically the sound of the, you know, the people noises coming in and out and the faces. That, again, that echoes, and I'll bring this uh, Halloween scene up again because there's such a good shot there, but that echoes uh, her her getting to the school Mm. uh, at night time, the sirens going off. It's just a really wonderful, and it's got that ironic use of that every day. (laughs) So, yeah, there's a few good musical cues in this film. Yeah, actually, the score was done by Johnny Greenwood, who's up this year for an Oscar for Phantom Thread. Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead. Brilliant. Brilliant, man. As a country, we have been through this too many times. Whether it's an elementary school in Newton or a shopping mall in Oregon or a temple in Wisconsin or a movie theater in Aurora or a street corner in Chicago, these neighborhoods are our neighborhoods and these children are our children. And we're going to have to come together and take meaningful action to prevent more tragedies like this regardless of the politics. Yeah, so just one thing, Damien, um, about the archery. I think it's really interesting that Kevin is introduced to archery and given the crossbow by his parents and that this echoes a lot of what we hear about real-life school shootings. Mm. You know, you find out, oh, yeah, his mum took him out every weekend for shooting. You know, he got him really, really skilled so that when he got into that classroom, he could gun down as many of these kids as possible. And you're always just so angry. Um, The idea of, you know, blame, how much blame these parents have, I don't think that that is insignificant that it's uh, Franklin who gives Kevin the, the bow and arrow and encourages that. Uh, I thought it would be good if you could talk to us a bit about some of the school shootings and, um, you know, because this is such a kind of modern, widespread phenomenon. Well, how you count mass shootings differs from one source to the next. Uh, a recent study by the Washington Post took four deaths as the minimum. Uh, That didn't include domestic shootings, robberies that turned into shootings, or gang killings, and determined that through November 20th of last year, there had been 146 mass shootings on American soil, accounting for 1,048 deaths. The victims ranged from eight-month-old Carlos Reyes, who was killed in a McDonald's restaurant in 1984 by a disgruntled, unemployed father of two, all the way to 98-year-old Louise DeCleur, who was shot and killed in her nursing home in 2009 by a man looking for his estranged wife. Modern American mass shootings began, for all intents and purposes, on August 1st, 1966, when ex-Marine Charles Whitman scaled a tower at the University of Texas and picked off 14 innocent people after killing his wife and mother. Of the 10 deadliest mass shootings in American history, six have taken place in the last decade, including the top five. The deadliest was the Las Vegas Country Music Festival shooting, which claimed 58 victims and occurred just over four months ago. The second deadliest, the Pulse nightclub shootings in Orlando, took 49 victims and occurred just 16 months earlier. School shootings in particular have cemented their place in the history of the United States in the last two decades, largely due to three horrific events. 
1999, Dylan Harris and Eric Klebold walked into Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado and killed 12 of their fellow students. In 2007, Seung Hui Cho opens fire and kills 30 students and two teachers at Virginia Tech University in Blacksburg, Virginia. And in 2012, 20-year-old Adam Lanza killed his mother before heading to Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, killing six faculty members and 20 first-grade students aged either six or seven years old before killing himself. But these occurrences do not tell the real story. There were not three madmen who flipped. Their actions are merely the worst examples of a problem that has seen, on average, at least one shooting on school grounds per week over the last four years. As of January 23rd, that's less than four weeks, in 2018 there had already been 11 gun incidents on school grounds in America. Is this normal? Are there other countries experiencing one school shooting per week on average? Well, no. Between 2000 and 2010, the United States, with 309 million citizens, experienced 27 school shootings with at least two victims. Combined, Argentina, Australia, Azerbaijan, Belgium, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Brazil, Bulgaria, Canada, China, Denmark, England, Finland, France, Germany, Greece, Guatemala, Hungary, India, Israel, Italy, Japan, Kenya, Latvia, Netherlands, Northern Ireland, Norway, Poland, Russia, Scotland, South Africa, South Korea, Swaziland, Thailand, Trinidad and Tobago and Yemen. That's 3.8 billion people, or more than 12 times the population of the US, experienced 28, which is just one more. The saddest part of this story comes in the country's reaction to these shootings. In the most recent Gallup poll on guns held in October 2017, 60% of citizens answered yes to the question, do you feel that the laws covering the sale of firearms should be made more strict? 60% sounds like a lot, until you realise that it has dropped precipitously from 78% when the question was first posed in 1990. Likewise, the question, do you think there should be a law that would ban the possession of handguns except by police and other authorised persons, was answered in the affirmative by 28% of people, down from a massive 60% when first asked in 1959. And yet, still, the following questions all received overwhelmingly positive results. Requiring background checks for all gun purchases was favoured by 96% of respondents. Enacting a 30-day waiting period for all gun purchases was favoured by 75%, and requiring all privately owned guns to be registered with police was favoured by 70%. So why no action still? The National Rifle Association, between 1989 and 2016, donated $22.9 million to political campaigns, and in 2016 alone spent $54.3 million on lobbying. All gun control groups combined donated $4.2 million to political campaigns and spent $1.7 million on lobbying during these same periods. Money talks, and combined with the general lack of support for big government control of guns, nothing gets done. And it's not that it can't, as Australia itself has shown in response to the Port Arthur massacre. But this is a bigger debate than we can contain in an episode of Celluloid Junkies. So for the lighter side of the argument... We'll link in the show notes to an amusing but somewhat horrifying video series done by John Oliver on The Daily Show about Australian gun control. 
just thank God we live in Australia and that John Howard took guns out after Port Arthur. Because life would be so different. Mm. And it must be scary for people in the US, a lot of people. I mean, this is why I could never be a politician because they all have to say, even the Democrats, that they are in support of the... <laughs> what is it? The, 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 the Yeah, the amendment, yeah. Uh, whichever one it is that, that says that m- people have the right to bear arms. They have to pretend they're in support of it. And that is essentially like a psychotic... People can still have the right to bear arms if they are, you know, proven not to be mentally ill. Well, they're just going to keep killing each other and it's just, okay, fine, if that's how you want to be. But, I mean, there are there's a nicer way to live. The number... There is. The number of school shootings that happen because a young child brings their parents' gun to school is is just overwhelming. I, I know, I've gotten to, what, 33, and I've never had one moment in my life where I thought, God, I wish I had a gun right now. <laughs> never. Hmm. You know, that whole argument about, you know, in Panic Room, um, when Jodie Foster was promoting it, she said, I think the moral of this story is don't get a Panic Room, because by the very fact that you install it, you're kind of inviting people to break in, <laughs> because you're living with that paranoia, and we project our own realities a lot of the time. So, I mean, you know, if you're going to carry around a gun, if you're, you're, you're already bringing such an aggression to how you're relating to the world, and chances are... You'll find someone. You know, someone will find that. Someone will pick up on your aggression. And usually it'll be the people that you spend the most time with, apparently. Yeah, well, that's right, because it's like the greater percentage of people who are shot are people who know them. And and it's weird. I actually watched a documentary, Deadly Women, and it was about uh, spree killings. But they had the story, I Don't Like Mondays, in there. Yep. Yeah. And I just watched that this last week. the opening of this movie has three really distinct cues and I I admire how Ramsey has done these uh, kind of alternating visual and audio cues throughout the movie but the first is an audio cue and we're moving towards an open curtain blowing in the breeze and we hear the sound of a sprinkler in the backyard which echoes the sound of machine gun fire and it's that's just I mean, you don't pick up on it straight away because there's no reason to pick up on it straight away. But we return to that shot at the end of this movie. And that sound comes back. Yes. So when Kevin destroys her map room before she goes back in there, you hear that... So that sound comes to represent any time where there's tension or anxiety or a bad thing's about to happen. Yeah. It's essentially the Jaws theme, but for this film. Yeah. Uh, so I think Ramsey does this so well. Uh, the the second is a visual cue um, of Eva at La Tomatina. Um, obviously, this is and the next scene, which is we're back at the house and the red paint is all over her house and her car, but the symbolism of blood um, is kind of overwhelming. The other thing that I really like is uh, the long shots of empty spaces, which are done time and time again in this movie. Um, It's done in the supermarket when Eva shops. It's done in the hospital when she waits for Kevin's return, um, to return to her after she's broken his arm. And it's in the jail when Eva walks down the long corridor to visit her son. So I guess each of those are, are showing how alone Eva is in her own experience obviously there's that uh, scene where Eva seeks solace and relief from Kevin's screaming by uh, standing next to the jackhammer getting back a little bit to the non-linear narrative but I've kind of moved this into this section because I think it's a little bit more apt 
Ramsey uses this structure, this non-linear structure of this movie to full advantage. She does so well with it. And there are constant cuts from the past to the present featuring either similar framing or similar thematic content. And this is not dissimilar to, obviously, that, that most famous of cuts, the Dawn of Man cut from Kubrick's 2001. Uh, there's Eva walking down the long corridor while pregnant, and the girls dressed in ballet costumes swarm past her. And that's echoed later in her visits to the jail to see Kevin. She's walking down a very similar long corridor. And... Both of these things are life sentences, and it's just such a good visual analogy. You talked earlier about uh, Eva removing eggshell from her meal while eating dinner, which is echoed in Kevin pulling his fingernails out of his mouth that he's bitten off. And Um, lining them up on the table like tiny corpses. Yeah, and the, the difference between this scene and the rest of what she does is that both of these scenes are actually occurring in the present, whereas a lot of what she does when she does these cuts are the past versus the present. Another great example of the past versus the present is Kevin throwing his food against the fridge as a child, and that is just following this scene where she's driven home on Halloween evening. She's got trick-or-treaters banging at her door. She's got Kevin, when he was a child, chucking food against her fridge. And these trick-or-treaters... I mean, what do trick-or-treaters do when they don't get food? They egg the house. So there's this idea that she's in house in this house in her own house under bombardment of these eggs from these trick-or-treaters because she doesn't have any food to give them any lollies to give them so I, I that's a really really good example of it as well the repetition thematically uh, that we talked about in um, kevin peeling and eating the lychee which is his essentially symbolic of his sister's eye and the repetition is in the the fact that it's made the drain cleaner that that caused this injury is made from lye Uh, and that she's going to uh, need the glass eye. There are so many visual and audio cues throughout this movie that you can read, and that's just a sample of them. There's there's probably so many more throughout the movie as well. And I think you could probably watch the film ten more times and still be finding new things. I feel like it's it's a meticulously edited film. There's a couple of things that don't work for me. Uh, I told you one yesterday, but I've got another one. It's a little bit overbearing that Kevin turns to her with his um, little suction cap uh, bow and arrow Mm -hmm. and shoots her. I mean, that's a little bit obvious. (laughs) But the scenes that really don't work for me are Eva and Franklin's courtship, Um, the scenes of them dancing and smoking in the the rain. They feel false. They feel cliched. And that is something that this film does not feel at all Uh, to me they don't necessarily feel false they don't feel good but um they just feel very unnecessary and i just wish they weren't in there franklin is such a non-essential part of so much of this film it is eva it is kevin i feel like maybe lynn ramsey was put that in there trying to help us understand how this woman ended up where she ended up you know i think that those scenes were an attempt to to show us well she fell in love we didn't really need them i i think we could have i think we you work that out just kind of naturally intuitively you know that how this woman ended up here and you don't need any kind of visual narrative to help you with that yeah um so i feel like in a way they were put in as a little bit of a maybe like an insecurity on lynn ramsey's part like i need to make this a bit clearer about how eva ended up here but you're right they're not they're not necessary. They don't add anything. They, if anything, they, they take away from a film that otherwise has a really interesting, very sharp focus. Yes. Yeah, um, they do. One scene that I don't like is the scene where the uh, 
don't know what they are, Mormons or something, come to the door. And, you know, they I, ask I enjoy her, that in the sense that I can imagine your dad doing it. <laughs> I feel like it's a... Um, I think my problem actually with it is Tilda Swinton's performance, funnily enough. Yeah. I feel like she's very like, oh, I'm just, you know, you can feel that she's going for the comedy. Yeah. And I don't like that. It doesn't suit the character. Um, I, I agree. I don't mind the scene just because I find the scene quite funny. I do like it yeah. in that sense. But yeah, it, it, it's superfluous. Yeah, I could have just lived without it. It felt tonally off. Yeah. I don't think that there's much room for laughter in this film and Watching it a second, watching it this time, I remember when I first saw that scene, I thought it was hilarious. But watching it this time, I thought, oh, that, that doesn't feel right. Why was that in there? Well, I guess I'm still going to be immature because I still think it was quite <laughs> Lynn Ramsey, as you said, came aboard uh, the Kevin Project after her deal to write and direct a film version of uh, Alice Seabold's The Lovely Bones fell apart at the last hour, and Peter Jackson went on to direct that film an adaptation that Ramsey has been somewhat scathing of since its release and which scored a very poor 31% on Rotten Tomatoes. Ramsey instead focused on this project. Uh, Shriver had won the Orange Prize in 2005 for her book, which was later renamed the Women's Prize for Fiction, and the rights for the story were purchased uh, by BBC Films. In 2014, a poll of readers cited Shriver's book as the 14th most important book by a female author. Included above Kevin on this list were Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind, Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar, Toni Morrison's Beloved, novels by the Bronte sisters Jane Austen, Daphne du Maurier, Margaret Atwood, and at number one was Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. So that is some very elite company. Anyway, getting back to the movie, Ramsey went to the right project in the end. We need to talk about Kevin debuted in May of 2011 at the Cannes Film Festival where it was in competition for the prestigious Palme d'Or. That year's award went to Terence Malick's The Tree of Life. Ugh. <laughs> I was sure you'd be thrilled to hear that. Other films in competition included Oscar Best Picture winner The Artist, Lars von Trier's Melancholia, Almodovar's The Skin I Live In, and the Australian entry was Julia Lay's Sleeping Beauty. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, Kevin Gunn had very good reviews. is certified fresh, 76% rating on Rotten Tomatoes from 194 critic reviews. It was released in the UK in October and would gross $3.5 million there, and in the US in December where it would gross a further $1.74 million. It was a minor hit in Australia too, grossing over $700,000 in art house theatres in the lead up to Christmas, and overall the box office ended up at around $10 million. Anywhere from 9.2 to 10.8 depending on which figures you most believe. And on a reasonably large $7 million budget, this would have to have been met with some mixed responses from the investors. Outside of Cannes, nominations and awards flowed in for Tilda Swinton's delicate, desperate performance. She was nominated for the Actor, BAFTA, British Independent Film Award, Critics' Choice Award, Golden Globe, Screen Actors Guild Award, Dallas-Fort Worth, London, San Diego and Washington Area Critics' Awards. She won in Austin and San Francisco as well as the European Film Award, the Online Film Critics Society Award and the National Board of Review of Motion Pictures. The film itself won Best Picture at the London Film Festival and the London Film Critics Circle and Lynn Ramsey won Best Director at the British Independent Film Awards and the prestigious Talon Black Knights Film Festival in Estonia. That this film received not a single nomination at the Oscars in a year in which Meryl Streep won for The Iron Lady is absolutely baffling. And nothing against Meryl Streep there, but that performance was not her best. Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times gave the film full marks. 
stating, As a portrait of a deteriorating state of mind, we need to talk about Kevin as a masterful film. Swinton told me of a line... This is what you mentioned earlier. Swinton told me of a line that in the script that wasn't used wisely, I believe. After you see the film, think about it. She asked Kevin why he didn't kill her. His reply, you don't want to kill your audience. Almost reflective of the audience going to see the film as well. Kenneth Turan of the Los Angeles Times loved the film almost as much, citing that it is a huge loss to cinema that Ramsey was stuck for five years on the Lovely Bones project, which meant it was almost a decade between this project and her last... If Eva did not want to be a mother, her child feels like someone who did not ask to be born. We watch an increasing disbelief as Kevin, as spiteful and adversarial as he is clever and calculating, engages in nihilistic combat with his mother as he goes from bad to badder to worst. Though the exact details of where Kevin ends up and how he gets there are not revealed at once, it is not hard to guess the destination early on. What holds us in the film, besides Ramsey's skill, is Swinton's fearless, ferocious performance as someone not only trying to come to terms with an endless nightmare, but also agonising over what part she might have had in its creation. And then there are those who miss the point, as always, like Rex Reed of the New York Observer, who gave the film zero out of four stars as though it was an artless project. This is the same Rex Reed who that same year gave Trespass, starring Nick Cage and Nick Kidman, one more star than that. He even gave The Ledge. Luke, I hope you remember this film. (laughs) Do you remember The Ledge? Yes, yes. A film with one of the least imaginative and most contrived screenplays I've ever seen. A film that would rate just 14% on Rotten Tomatoes. Two full stars. (laughs) But, no, Kevin wasn't worthy of even one. He said... We need to talk about Kevin. Why? I'd rather just ignore him and this vile, pretentious movie completely, with an incomprehensible script and jigsaw puzzle direction both by Scottish poser Lynn Ramsey and a loopy performance by weirdo Tilda Swinton as the half-mad mother of a serial killer. This is the most unwatchable horror movie masquerading as social comment I have seen this year. I mean, hey, if you can't throw around a couple of personal attacks in a major newspaper and get paid for it, passing it off as theoretical writing and learned criticism, I think maybe your time has passed and the pen should be ripped from your cold, brain-dead hands. (laughs) Yeah, Rex Reed is so pathetic. A serial killer! (laughs) Did he watch the same movie? There is no serial killer. No. That's it. (laughs) That's good, thank you. Lynn Ramsey, we should just say, she's got a new film coming out called You Were Never Really Here, which is about a contract killer who, some sort of conspiracy thriller. And um, it's apparently brilliant. It's getting rave reviews. It's the first film. First film. She's done since, Kevin. Yeah, this stars Joaquin Phoenix, I believe, is in her new film. Yeah, which is, what, almost seven years? 2011, so yeah, seven years. And and it was nine years in between Morven Caller and We Need to Talk About Kevin. So very exciting that we're this now getting... This is her getting... fourth movie. Ugh. That's it. In, in, in 20 years, four movies. That's Terrence Malick-style out there. Yeah. I mean, when you've got a filmmaker like this who is really bold and has such a unique voice, they're always going to struggle because they're not going down conventional lines. You know, they're not going to get project after project after project done. The nice thing, though, about this filmmaker is that she's almost always worth the wait because you're going to get something truly remarkable. It's like Aronofsky. You know, you don't get a film often, but when you do, you're so glad you've got one. Hmm. Uh, So, yeah, look out for that one. We haven't seen it yet. No. But we will. We will. And, uh, you know, we've 
spoken, if you've listened to us on different uh, previous podcasts, we've spoken about the importance and our goal this year to start looking at uh, female filmmakers. And so this is our first episode on a film female director, mm. um, Lynn Ramsey. We will have many more this season and next season of the podcast as well. Yes, we've been going through lists of great female-directed films and there are many more that we're very excited to talk about and that we're going to be bringing you, so uh, stand by for that. I think it's definitely time to start celebrating women in film, directing films. They've given us some wonderful ones and I think it's only going to get better now that um, the Time's Up movement and that there are all these kind of shifts, cultural shifts happening in Hollywood Mm. and around the world. And time is upon us to do the quiz. The quiz. Jesus Christ. Okay. Do you want to go first or do you want me to? Um, you go first. Okay. Did Lionel Shriver, author of We Need to Talk About Kevin, see this film and what did she think? Um, I'm going to say yes and she liked it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, she, uh, she wrote this about it. She actually wrote an essay. Uh, and part this is just part of it, I'm paraphrasing, but an atrocious movie of We Need to Talk About Kevin could have stigmatised the book, agreed with the novel's fans, and blighted my reputation forever. People will often buy the original novel if it is made into a film they fancied, but never the source material for a film they despised. Thank you, thank you, Lynn and Rory. Another life just passed before my eyes, and it wasn't pretty. <laughs> That's fantastic, because this is a really great adaptation. The son of which film director who was profiled in a previous episode of Celluloid Junkies serves as a producer on this film? Oh, God. The son of what? The son of which film director who was profiled in a previous episode of Celluloid Junkies serves as a producer on this film? In what context was he... He is a producer on this film. Yeah, but what in con- what context was he mentioned on a previous episode? No, no. He is the son of a film director we profiled in a film previous cel- episode of this podcast. I'm and never. You, you have this. mentioned his name already in this podcast in your introduction. Steven Soderbergh. No, no. <laughs> I'll let you go. Scroll back through your notes and see who produced this film. I'm looking, boys and girls. <laughs> I'm trying to find the the answer. <laughs> Luke Rogue, who's Nicholas Rogue's son. Very good. <laughs> Do I get that? Yes, I'll give you that. Oh, you're a uh, Luke Rogue was also um, the star of Nicholas Rogue's film Walkabout, which is an Australian movie. Okay, Damien, number two. When Eva is in the supermarket, she is standing behind a display case of soup. What is the name of the soup? Oh, see, this is... uh, I've forgotten because you've told me it can't be Campbell's Soup, so I thought it was Campbell's Soup this whole time. But no, I don't know. It's Ma Ramsey's Tomato Soup for Lynn Ramsey. Oh, okay, that's interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Which 2014 documentary about an American school shooting referenced the name of this movie in its title? God, I feel like I know that. But I'm not going to get it. It was, uh, we need to talk about Sandy Hook, about the Newtown, Connecticut killings. You know, I saw a documentary about that shooting called Newtown, which was really focused on the victims' families, and that was just gut-wrenching. That's on Netflix, I believe. 
Can you name another film starring John C. Riley where the fate of one of his children's rodents features prominently in the story? I did actually see this when I was <laughs> studying. It was Carnage. That's right, yeah. Which is int- a great fun movie. It's an interesting one, yeah. Okay, so you got two out of three. I got two out of three so oh, no, far. I'm st- I've only asked you two questions. That's right. Okay, so you've only got two out of two. No, you've only got one out one of two. One out of two, <laughs> yeah. Tilda Swinton and John C. Riley have both received Academy Award nominations for supporting roles. Swinton won, but Riley didn't. Name the films they were nominated for. Well, she was nominated and won for Michael Clayton. Yes. I wonder what John C. He could have been nominated, God, a million times. He's so good. I guess he's more known for dramatic films in the last five years, but it was previous to that. So was it for a comedy? So not Magnolia? No. Not The River Wild? No. Uh, Can you imagine? <laughs> I forget he's in that film usually. Um, and it wasn't it wasn't a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, which he seems to show up in a fair bit. Did I like this film? I don't know. Mm. Probably not. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, he was nominated for Chicago. Oh, God. But lost to Chris Cooper for adaptation. Right, okay. So who won that quiz? Uh, you've still got another question and so do I. I've asked you three questions. You've got four questions there. Yeah, I do, but I thought we did oh, three Oh, I've each. got a really good question. All right, fine, we'll go out of eight. But what are you on so far? I'm on... Uh, you're on one. And you're on two. Yeah. True or false, while filming, Ezra Miller was picked up by police for possession of pot, but the charges were dropped. False. It is false. <laughs> but this did happen to him the following year while filming The Perks of Being a Wallflower. Okay. He said about his arrest, I don't feel like there's any need to hide the fact that I smoke pot. It's a harmless herbal substance that increases sensory appreciation. (laughs) Ezra Miller, I like him. He's good. He's awesome. Okay, last question. I've already won the quiz. Yeah. But let's see if you can get this one. Robert Festinger, who was originally co-adapting the screenplay with Ramsay as early as 2006, but who later dropped out of the project, was fresh off of co-writing which dramatic Best Picture-nominated film about domestic violence and murder, which also brought him a nomination for Best Adapted Screenplay? I have no idea. (sighs) Am I going to kick myself? In... The Bedroom. In The Bedroom. I love that film. (laughs) Yes, In The Bedroom. Okay, fine, you win. (laughs) Whatever. All right, Damien, so final thoughts, star rating. Uh, Four and a half stars. This is an intelligent film made for an intelligent audience. It is such a literary adaptation of a magnificent piece of literature. The book is held in such high regard and is such an individual work that would have been difficult to translate to the screen, but it was done very well. I gave it 4.5 stars as well. I think it's a really bold, unique film. I appreciate not only the look at the subject matter, but also the mechanics of the storytelling, which I think are really incisive and sharp and clever and unusual. Absolutely loved it. And um, if you haven't seen it, boys and girls, go out and, yeah, what are you waiting for? Mm. Well, that's all we have this month for Celluloid Junkies. Thank you so much for joining us. We are uh, going to be looking next month at a film that we both only saw recently, but we loved, uh, and we can't wait to get our teeth into it. It's Fritz Lang's 1931 German thriller, M. So uh, between then and now, make sure you get your hands on a copy, sit down, you won't be sorry, and then uh, join us again and get involved in the chat. Until then, you guys have a lovely life, and we'll see you next month.
inside her head gets switched to overload, and nobody's gonna go to school today. She's gonna make them stay at home, and Daddy doesn't understand it. He always said she was good as gold. He can see no reason, 'cause there are no reasons. What reason do you need to be shown? Tell me why I don't like Mondays. Tell me why I don't like Mondays. I don't like. I don't like. I don't like Mondays. Tell me why I don't like Mondays. I wanna shoot.